Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Angie Kim moved as a preteen from Seoul, South Korea to the suburbs of Baltimore. After graduating from Interlochen Arts Academy, she studied philosophy at Stanford and attended Harvard Law School, where she was the editor of the Harvard Law Review. It wasn't until her 40s, after careers in law, business, and motherhood, that she published her debut novel, Miracle Creek. It won the Edgar Award, the ITW Thriller Award, the Stans Critic Award, and the Pinkley Prize, and was named one of the best books of the year by Time, The Washington Post, Kirkus Reviews, and The Today Show. Her second novel, Happiness Falls, came out in August by Hogarth, a New York Times bestseller and Good Morning America book club pick. It will appeal to mystery and thriller writers, philosophers, those active in the special needs and autism communities, and anyone who generally loves a thought-provoking and engaging read. Angie joins me today to talk about all of it. Along the way, we chat about both her childhood and her prior careers and how they influence her fiction, how she used a combination of free writing and her obsession with narrative architecture to structure this novel, how mysteries can be used as Trojan horses in fiction, using creative literary devices to reveal character novels, the perils and pleasures of first person, and so much more. Before I bring her on, a quick reminder to visit our Patreon page. We are offering special tips and perks to our patrons. If the show has boosted your writing in some way or given you some useful advice, you can support us there, patreon.com slash writers on writing. And we also invite you, if you are interested in Happiness Falls or any other book by our past guests, to visit our bookshop. We have a, um, a new affiliate bookshop at bookshop.org. You can find us there bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. And finally, we invite you to leave a review of the show on Apple, Amazon, however you consume your podcasts. Those bring more listeners to the show and that helps us too. Enough of the housekeeping, on with the show. Angie Kim, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I love writing craft and I consider myself a student of it. And so I'm really excited to be talking about this with you. So I always love talking to fellow philosophy majors and fellow former lawyers who turned into writers. And I feel like it's not common enough to be a cliche, but it's too common to be a coincidence. So. Uh, absolutely, right? Well, especially, I'm not sure about the philosophy part. I think you may be the only other philosophy sort of, you know, somebody who studied it in undergrad and things like that, that I have um, talked to. <laughs> exactly. We're small but mighty, right? <laughs> very, very small, but yes, absolutely mighty. But, you know, but so many people are interested in it. They they don't necessarily study it, but definitely, yes, with respect to former lawyers, right? Yeah. I mean, that always brings up the question for me, because it was true of me, unlearning legalese and how how much you had to do of that to write fiction, because there's such different parts of the brain. There's such different ways of approaching writing, which actually is what attracted me to the law, because I thought, you know, this is a way to get writing in without without starving oh. to death. <laughs> so that's so funny, because for me, writing was not something that I ever wanted to do. I was always an avid reader and I loved stories, but I was an actor. And so I studied theater in high school and I was told this was back in the 80s that, you know, hey, you're Asian. Um, there aren't that many roles. So maybe think about doing something else. We hear you're good at like school stuff, like academic stuff. So maybe do something like that. And uh, <laughs> and uh, which just really makes me like shake my head now. But, you know, at the time I was like, what can I do that is like what I love doing, which is perform and be on stage and, you know, do method acting and get lost in characters and yet still have it be not acting and have your race hopefully not matter as much. And, you know, and I immediately thought of be those litigators on TV that are waving their arms around and being like, objection and, you know, being very, you know, emoting and all of that and, and performing and being very performative. And so I got attracted to the law because of that. And then I realized that I hated everything about the practice of law, 
except for that, which is, you know, as you know, like 5% of being even for a litigator of your life. And so that wasn't enough to sustain me. And I decided to leave the law very quickly. And I went into business and things like that, where you basically write in, you know, basic PowerPoint. So unless you're Jennifer Egan writing, you know, the PowerPoint chapter from Goon Squad, <laughs> that doesn't really come in very <laughs> handy. So I didn't feel like I had to unlearn many things just because it's been so long since I've been in that world. But I will say that the narrative storytelling element, when you are telling the story to the judge or jury, um, or even in written form in a brief, you know, really using the evidence that's out there to formulate a story that really makes sense and that flows and that engages the attention. That I feel like I did learn from the law. And that's what I feel like has carried me to now. And you got to use footnotes. And how often do you do that? <laughs> oh, my God. I love footnotes in fiction, especially. So yes, yes. we're definitely going to talk about that. So when you turned to fiction, tell me a little bit about the useful things you found that prepared you as a creative writer. I, I don't think you went back to get your MFA. So tell me a little bit about how you trained for that. Yeah, so I did not get an MFA. I was in my 40s when I started writing and I started with personal essays, mostly because the reason I turned to writing is because I have three kids who all are fine now, but all of whom had weird medical mystery types of issues as babies slash preschoolers. And so dealing with that day in and day out when my own husband was a litigator himself and he was traveling a lot and being at home with them, I just got sort of to the end of my rope one day and I really needed catharsis. And so instead of doing all the things that I was supposed to be doing, like cleaning up and, you know, after the kids went to bed and preparing for the next day's meals, because all three of my kids had food issues, I just started writing. It was so freeing and so cathartic in a way that I hadn't realized writing could be. And so I decided to actually take it seriously. And I enrolled in classes at my local writer center, which is in Bethesda, Maryland. I'm in the DC area. And I started taking classes on personal essay. And I sort of thought, and since this is a podcast for writers, I can confess this to you guys. And hopefully you guys all understand what I'm saying <laughs> is that I went into this class and it was with this great guy, Bill O'Sullivan, who taught me so much. And he is a renowned essayist. And I figured, and he's also a Washingtonian editor, and I figured he would look at like the one thing that I had done and sort of go, wow, this is amazing, Angie. Like, I can't believe that this is the first essay you've ever written. I think that I'm going to call up my New Yorker editor and I'm sure they'll just print this the way it is, you know, that that kind of thing. That's what I was imagining, like, you know, fantasizing about in my in my <laughs> little yes. brain here. Yes. And then instead, he said, so let's talk about cliches. Like, <laughs> oh, wow, like I what is that? <laughs> you know, and so it's really this like unbelievable education where sort of from the beginning, he kind of taught the entire class how to workshop, how to write well, gave us essays that just to this day I have, you know, printed next to me that just slay me. And so that's that was sort of the beginning for me. And I really believe in writing classes and I really believe in workshops. And so I took I continued to take workshops there and at Gotham Writers Workshop online. What are a few of those essays that slay you? Now I'm curious. Yeah, there is this one called Ugly that was um, published in Shenandoah. And it's actually by a writer who was a student of his who was writing about um, how she felt ugly her entire life and some of the physical attributes that she has. It was really, when you boil down to really what it's about, it's about her relationship with her mother. And Cheryl Strade's essay that was in the Sun magazine, which is a magazine that I love. I love Shenandoah, yeah. too. The one called, I think it's called The Love of My Life, mm. about when her mother died. That 
essay just slays me and I reread it every once in a while just to remind me of how raw honesty can feel. And so those are so those are I think the first two essays that he introduced us to. So you can imagine like how amazing this this education was for me. Mm. Well, let's get into Happiness Falls because there's so much writerly stuff to talk about in here too. I'll let you introduce it because you'll do better than I will. Take us into Mia's world and kind of set the book up and then we'll we'll take it from there. Yeah. So Happiness Falls is my second novel and it is a story about a family in crisis. It opens when the father of this biracial Korean American family goes missing. And the only person who was with him who might know what happened is 14 year old Eugene, who is autistic and also has a rare genetic condition called Angelman syndrome and therefore cannot speak. And so in order to figure out what happened to the father and also to try to protect Eugene from the police, the family really has to come together and learn to try to connect and truly communicate with each other, especially Eugene. And we should say it takes place, the real time of the novel takes place pretty much over like three days. Yes, <laughs> three days and then like 97 days later. Yes. Um, yeah, 100 days after the father goes missing. So yeah, it's, it's but the bulk of it, like 85%, maybe 90% over three days. Yeah, so we're going to talk about how to manage time in a novel because I think that was really interesting. And it's set during the pandemic. Tell me a little bit about that choice. I mean, I assume it was also written during the pandemic, just based on the timing of publication. But yeah, um, yeah, tell me what that did for you and what that maybe the 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 pleasures and perils of setting something during the pandemic. Yeah. So I didn't actually mean to set it during the pandemic. I actually sold this novel. This is the other peril and pleasure of having a second novel, you know, with your debut novel, which I think most people know you have to write the whole thing before you can get, you know, an agent and sell it and all that kind of stuff. With the second novel, I was lucky enough that I was able to sell it based on the first like 60 pages and a few, you know, like a three page pitch. And I didn't know what was going to happen at the end of the novel. So the pitch was basically like, well, here's what, you know, the setup is. (laughs) And I did not intend for this to be set in during COVID because, you know, we were still going through it. We sold it in 2020. I started writing it in 2020. And everything was just so new that when I tried writing it without COVID in there, just, you know, kind of at a time of undefined time or before or whatever, I could not imagine what it was. I I couldn't remember what it felt like. And so it was really hard for me to try to figure that out. And the way that I write, I call it method writing because it's kind of similar to method acting in that I really try to get inside the character's head and sort of stay in it as much as possible and into the point of view character's head. So my debut novel had seven POVs. This one only has one and it's in you know first person, very voicey. And so being in her head and trying to imagine life without all the stuff that was going around on all, around me all the time and my family, I just couldn't do it. And so I had to set it in COVID just as a writing exercise. And I sort of said to my editor and my agent, like, guys, we can strip out the COVID stuff later if you want. I, it's not important to me. I just need it for right now just to get going on the writing. And so we said, yeah, we'll revisit it later. And then we decided that, you know, actually made sense for it to be set in COVID. Yeah. I mean, there are so many things that it adds to the storyline that wouldn't be there otherwise. I mean, it really adds a lot of heightened tension, but it also adds this layer of kind of scary contagion and the mask wearing, which plays a role. And I mean, it really really served the narrative. Yeah, it really does. So there are, yeah, there are so many themes in the novel that I wanted to explore. One of which is, you know, you can tell from the, from the name happiness falls is the theory of happiness and the relativity of happiness. And one of the characters has this concept called happiness quotient, where they are saying that happiness is basically relative to your expectations and to your baseline. 
And so the fact that our entire societal baseline changed so rapidly and so quickly and kept on changing throughout COVID, it really served the narrative and I think brought out and kind of amplified that theme. And so that was one reason to keep it in. And yeah, the mask too. Like there's one character, Angelman Syndrome. People with Angelman Syndrome usually have a persistent smile on their face. And so it, it kind of functions as a mask. So when that character is wearing a mask, like a COVID mask on top of the smile, it's actually masking the mask, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And so it's actually easier to tell what he's actually feeling. So that was interesting, too. So all of these little things that came out that we were like, yeah, we don't want to lose that. No. It's so funny because I talk to writers about how do you know when you're on the right path? Like writing a novel is such a long, arduous process. And I feel like the universe sometimes gives you little hints like, yeah, keep going. This is, you know, this is good. And I thought that that was perfect for this. I mean, it, it was probably one of those little hints of you're onto something here. Yes, yeah. I love that you said that. So I am not a person that believes in like higher mystical powers or whatever, yeah. you know, or fate or karma. But when it comes to writing, I've really become that way, especially in the writing of this book more than any other. My editor came along, like my agent was like, oh, there was this editor who like loved Miracle Creek and who's really interested in acquiring your book. But he's coming back to being an editor after sort of taking some time off to, you know, focus on his own writing. And she wouldn't tell me who it was because she said it hadn't been announced yet. And then when she told me who it was, it's David Ebershoff, I like screamed <laughs> because I have seven books next. I had at that time, I had seven books next to me in a stack, um, my touchstones that I turned to for whatever reason. And one of them was his own novel, The 19th Wife, <laughs> which uh, which was teaching me so much about voice and also sort of weaving in different stories and weaving in sort of nonfiction-y types of facts that uh, I thought were fascinating. And so I would sort of turn to that just to see sort of how he did the transitions and all that kind of stuff. And the other book was The Reason I Jumped by Naoki Higashida, which he was, which was translated into English by David Mitchell, who is David's longtime author. And so David Ebershoff, my editor, edited this book, The Reason I Jump, is about a non-speaking autistic boy. It's written by him and a 13-year-old, then 13-year-old uh, non-speaking autistic. It was like my Bible. It, I read it daily. So to have him be the person who was interested in reaching out to my aunt. I mean, it was unbelievable, <laughs> you know, the kismet of that. And I have so many little things like that. Yeah, I'm the same way. I don't believe in any of that normally, but you do. I mean, I think you have to latch onto something, the long process of writing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You're like, please send me something. Send me anything. a sign. Yeah. So talk about how sort of the hook of this. I think I read this started as a short story along time ago, yeah. or at least the character started as a short story. Yes, the character started as a sh short story. The family did. So it was one of the first short stories that I wrote. And, you know, back when I was telling my story of this personal essay class. So I had, you know, started publishing personal essays. And you know, at some point, my husband said, you know, you're telling stories about our family. It's not really just your story. It's our family story, the kids story, and there's issues of consent, which they're too little to do, medical privacy. Why not try fiction? And I was like, I don't know how to write fiction. And so I started with short stories and again, taking those classes, intro to fiction and reading every book that I could. One of the first short stories that I ever wrote based on something that happened with my cousins and me back in Korea was a story written in Mia's voice. She was 14 years old at the time. And I was kind of obsessed with Karen Russell and her short stories at the mm -hmm. time. So it was kind of the, it was structured in a, in a similar way as her wonderful New Yorker um, short story called um, Haunting Olivia. Mm. And so my protagonist, just like hers, was, you know, this kind of sassy teenager who really loves her her younger sibling. And so it takes place in Korea around a graveyard, and it's a magical realism short story. Well, this family, and it was published back in 2013, 
And it won a contest that was judged by Charles Baxter, who's one of my idols. And so, of course, it meant so much to me. And he really praised the voice of the story. So that so I don't know if it's maybe because of that, that that Charles Baxter loved the voice. So I was like, well, then I should. So I'm not sure if it's that or something else. But this voice wouldn't leave me alone. Mia, she was she got older as my kids were getting older too. And I would sort of keep on thinking about her and her brothers and sort of thinking and wondering, like, I wonder what colleges they're applying to, you know, when my boys were applying to colleges and, you know, things like that. And so I think it developed this richness that, and I was doing a lot of free writing and I do morning paper pages and a lot of morning pages were kind of like, you know, about this family. And so I think it developed this richness that even though I wasn't really working on this book, I was working on other stories. I was working on my debut novel. It just kind of developed. I love that. So she, yeah. So by the time she arrives at Happiness Falls, she's really a fully fleshed out human. Yeah, (laughs) I think so. Yeah. And I know her voice really, really well. She feels like one of my kids or she's like a combination of one of my kids and also a little bit of me, of course. Yeah, the name. So, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Isn't it funny? Yeah. And so I yeah. And I even did stuff like I experimented for my debut novel, Miracle Creek, which is a different story altogether that, you know, these characters are not in that story. But I thought, well, maybe Mia is somehow involved. Maybe a grown up version of Mia is like playing a role as like a private investigator for that incident that occurs in in that novel. And um, so I had written some stuff from her perspective and it just didn't work for that book. But yeah, you can see that she wouldn't leave me alone. And she's a very particular personality that allows you to do a lot of really interesting things as a writer. And we kind of briefly touched on the footnotes earlier, but you're able to use sort of charts and graphs and lists and footnotes that in other novels might be tricky. You know, I'm curious how editors react to footnotes. But with her, that's who she is. And so you're able to do all these great backstories and conveyance of information and interesting ways to convey information to the reader in unconventional ways because it's part of her voice. So it just kind of enhances who she is. I don't know if I'm getting any of that right. No, absolutely. No, you're totally, totally right. I mean, she is very particular. She is very strong. She's intense. She's a lot, as I say. (laughs) She can be a bit too much. She says that about her brother, but really it's her. She's cynical. She's irreverent. She is. She has a dry wit and she's very much of a know-it-all. She is 20. She just started college, you know, not that long ago. So she's at that stage where she thinks she knows everything and she thinks she's an expert in everything. And it can be quite annoying. But, you know, I understand her because I can be kind of like her and I can be very insufferable, too. So I hear this from other people in my life all the time. So I deal with it. (laughs) And so when I read those like Goodreads reviews from people going like, oh, she is so annoying. I hate this character. I'm like, yeah, I know. I've heard that before. And editors, I The first 60 pages that I did sell this on, I sold it in both the US and in the UK. And I told them both like, you know, we can talk about the footnotes if you want. But for me, this is a way of getting to know the story and a a way of getting to know the character because this is just how Mia thinks. She right. thinks in parentheticals. She thinks in aside. She goes down rabbit holes. And and so there are a lot of asides and like short little parentheticals. But when they just got too unwieldy, I put them in footnotes and I said, I don't know how you guys feel about this. And the, luckily, both of them were like, I love footnotes. I love footnotes in, in fiction. And my agent loves them, too. I mean, I think it's also that all three of them are very much uh, proponents of and readers of literary fiction rather than your standard sort of mystery thriller genres. And so as a result of that, they're very used to experimental forms and they, they consider footnotes to be very commonplace. So you know, in novels. So I was like, okay, great. Good. I loved it. Not not just because the law thing, but I loved it. It brings us to the topic of structuring the book because 
as I mentioned earlier, the the main propulsion of action takes place over these kind of three days, 60 hours, the mo- the majority of it. But you have a ton of backstory. We have to understand who these characters are and their relationship to each other, their relationship to this father who is now missing his kind of role in the family. So there's a lot of information to backfill to understand what's happening in these 60 hours. And so tell me a little bit about structuring it. Did you have a timeline written out of where things happen? Because you know, stories can get bogged down in backstory yeah. and you don't want to kind of lose the thread of what's happening in the real moment, which we never do, but you do need all that back information. So tell me a little bit about managing forward propulsion versus backstory. Yeah. So I am not an outliner. I'm not a planner. I've tried with my debut novel. I tried outlining and I'm just afraid that I'm very bad at at it. So I write scene by scene and I write one scene at a time. And then I look and, you know, and I sort of perfect it until I love it. And then I move on to the next scene and I can't move on no matter how much I try, unless I feel like I've really nailed the scene that I'm working on, (laughs) which is really Mm -hmm. frustrating. I wish I could just like do a quick rough draft or, you know, outline or whatever. I just can't. And I've, when I try, it just comes out really ridiculous. Like I have no idea what's happening. And I feel like I need to really be in that moment. And again, like be, be that character and really like working on the micro moments and the sentence level stuff before I can move on to the next thing. And so because that's the way that I write what I am, but but because I also believe in story structure and I know exactly what notes you're supposed to hit, having the first plot point come at a certain time in the story and all of that sort of stuff. So what I do is an iterative method where Once I'm done with like a chapter or a scene, I read the whole thing through and I revise and I edit and all that kind of stuff and and polish it. And then I open up my little outline document and then I put in there what I just did, Mm -hmm. you know, at the Mm -hmm. sort of outline level. So I'm basically building an outline as I'm going along. So it allows me to look once I'm in between scenes or chapters to look at what I've done and see where I am in the story, which then helps me to figure out. And then I have that in the back of my head and then I can sort of go into the next scene and try to figure out what's happening and what's important to focus on for the next scene. And sometimes that can be a flashback, right? Because I'll just have finished some scene and I'm thinking, you know what, the what Mia is thinking right at this moment when she sees, you know, this amazing video or awful video or whatever about her father is it reminds her of something that happened. And it can just be a quick blip in real life. But of course, writing that out and explaining the whole context to the reader takes another full scene. So it's that kind of like, intuitive, but also trying to be structured by virtue of writing it down. And the other thing that you balance so well, so the the main thrust of the book is this missing father, but it really is about happiness. I mean, and it really is about a lot of other things. It really is, it really is <laughs> yeah. very philosophical. It really yeah. is about Eugene and his inability to communicate and what all of that means, which is a lot to unpack. And this relativity of happiness and kind of the philosophy behind all of that. So I love that you can get all of these societal, philosophical, psychological issues in there with uh, kind of on the coat hanger of what happened to dad. Yeah, yeah. And that was, you know, I have this Venn diagram that I'm looking at right now that and the Venn diagram was actually part of my little three page pitch that I sold the novel with. So it has three circles and the A circle is on top is the missing dad mystery arc. And the one of the other circles is the voice fluency. 
issue, which is, you know, the non-speaking Eugene and how does the family manage to finally connect with him? And then the third thing is this happiness quotient, the relativity of happiness, uh, which I consider sort of the psychological arc. And so those three things are kind of intertwined and where they come together in the middle is the ending. So all those three things like have to combine. And that was the whole thing is like to just sort of make sure that I'm not forgetting any of these three circles. So a person who is a thriller mystery lover who's only focused on the missing dad mystery arc might be a little bit frustrated with how much time I'm spending on the voice fluency issue or the happiness issue, you know, those types of things. But hopefully you're a reader who, you know, gets involved in all of them. But those other arcs are also relevant to help the family figure out what might have happened to the father. Yes. And did you have those three at the very outset of writing this? Yes, that was, yeah. So that was, I mean, not at the very outset. It depends on what you, how you define writing, right? Because because in some ways I've been writing, you know, because there are scenes like, like the cake scene in the novel. Mm -hmm. I probably wrote that back in 2014. 15 when I first when I was taking a break from revising Miracle Creek, my first novel, Hmm. you know, so things like that. And then, um, you know, a version of that. And so I have little tidbits here. And I took some stuff that I took out of Miracle Creek about the relativity of happiness. And I put those here, that type of thing. But when it comes to actually like sitting down, from chapter one and starting with the opening line, which is we didn't call the police right away. That was in June of 2020. So in some ways, I started writing at that time. And I and before I started drafting, I had the Venn diagram. I knew who the characters were, but I just didn't know what happened. And I knew the inciting incident, the dad going missing. But I didn't know exactly how it was going to play out. Okay. And do you ever write, it's all in first person from Mia's point of view, do you ever write from Eugene or John, any of the other points of view to tell me about sort of discovering who those, they're not minor characters, they're all major characters, but those not non voice, those non first person characters are. Yes. So before I start drafting, I definitely do a lot of exploration of writing out their stories and what they're thinking and what they're feeling and all of that. But of course, I don't have their reactions to what's happening in the story itself because I don't know what's going to happen in the story itself. So I sort of have their backgrounds and what they're like beforehand. Like I know what John John's college is life and all that kind of stuff and how he feels about the family and the mom and the dad too. And I do a lot of free writing from other characters' perspectives. Once I start writing though, like actually drafting, I really like to stick again to this method writing thing. I really like to stick to the the point of view characters' perspectives. And so in a way, the way that these other characters are depicted is completely filtered through Mia's perspective. So for example, Mia, you know, readily admits that she doesn't really think of her parents as real people. Like she's like, you know, to me, they're like these shapeless blobs that just kind of like form the role of, you know, parents, which, which I think is what, if they're being honest, our kids, you know, my kids who are, you know, college age would say about us, right? Like, yeah, mom, she wrote a book. Okay, whatever. Um, (laughs) So it's, so it's interesting that, you know, some of those characters, because this, this book is so Mia driven, they come across the way that she sees them, which is, of course, biased, like she sees John, her twin brother, as kind of naive and optimistic and, you know, like a little annoying and come on, is he really thinking that, you know, and that comes through in the way that he comes across because we're seeing everything through her perspective and same with the dad and the mom and, you know, Mia's surprised when she finally sees that her mom is like a real full-fledged person who can stand up to the police and, 
you know, like is pretty smart with them, even though she has an accent because she's a Korean immigrant, you know, that type of thing. Let's talk a little bit about research, because I know a ton of research must have gone into this, especially in relation to autism and Angelman syndrome and rendering Eugene sensitively and accurately and not being sort of too didactic with your readers about all of the research I know you must have done because I read the author's note. Yes. Tell me a little bit about how you approach the research process and yeah. and kind of weaving it naturally into the into the work. Yeah. So I feel like the research process for this book was really limited in some ways or changed by COVID and by the fact that I couldn't just go and meet people and go into their homes and spend time with them. I feel like for my debut novel, Miracle Creek, a lot of my research was very organic to my own life because that book has this hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber that kind of explodes at the very beginning and all the kind of characters that we meet throughout and the struggles that they have are things that I've experienced firsthand because I did one of these group HBOT therapies with one of my own kids for his um, ulcerative colitis when he was like four years old. And so I know these people and all the characters and some of the conversations are sort of taken from stuff that I've witnessed or that I've gone through. So it was very much like a lived in research. And for this one, it was harder because an Angelman syndrome is one of these gifts that I got, kind of got from the writing gods, like we were talking about, where I had seen, you know, from the short story that this 14 year old Eugene was one of these kids who was a non-speaker who had motor challenges and who always had this beatific smile on his face. And I just learned about Angelman syndrome, sort of Googling therapists who um, do this kind of spelling therapy where they take non-speaking autistics for the most part, and they teach them how to spell out words letter by painstaking letter. And so looking up one of them, I saw that a reference to Angelman syndrome. And I was like, what is Angelman syndrome? That sounds like a made up thing. And so I looked it up and it just gave me chills because it was exactly how I'd seen Eugene. It was with, you know, they have this persistent smile. They have motor issues. They're non-speaking and they their conditions are often misdiagnosed as solely being autism, which is how I, I'd had um, Eugene in my mind. And also inordinately drawn to water, uh, which is important because mm -hmm. in my novel, the they go near water and I won't spoil anything. But anyway, so it was just like one of these gifts from God. And so I just desperately reached out to a lot of families and I, you know, really wanted to meet them and actually see their, you know, their family life and get some of that sort of real life, you know, in-person kind of research rather than just like reading about it or even interviewing them by, by Zoom. And it was just so impossible to do. And so a lot of my research actually got delayed until probably the second year of my writing. So I did have to sprinkle in stuff later, but it also probably explains why a lot of the family's discovery of some of these things that are in the book about non-speakers and how they spell and all of that is kind of that does come in the second half of the book, because, again, it's so hard for me to divorce myself from the character. So I wanted the readers to go through the same this kind of discovery that the characters were going through, which also is, of course, when I was going through that because I was meeting them for the first time in, yeah. you know, that when the lockdown was kind of easing up. Yeah, it strikes me as tricky because Eugene is his own person. He has his own personality, separate and distinct from Angelman syndrome and autism. And so you have to get that in there as well in the yes. in the ways that that you can. Did you have sensitivity readers for the book after it was done? I absolutely. Yes, I had so many. Um, I had an official one that, you know, my editor, you know, at one of the Random House sensitivity readers read it for me. So that was really, really helpful. 
but even more than that, but but that sensitivity reader was not a non-speaker. And so I really wanted people who are versed in this world, as well as Angelman syndrome and autism. So I had all these experts and also non-speakers themselves. So throughout um, my research process, I actually got really involved with my local community, which actually happens to just coincidentally, again, <laughs> be the headquarters, the international headquarters for a really great uh, form of spelling therapy called okay. Spelling to Communicate, S2C. And so, and actually they were recently featured on Good Morning America because, you know, they actually came down, the GMA crew came down and um, for my set, well, for one of my segments, they actually filmed one of my classes. So I teach creative writing to a bunch of non-speakers now, most wow. of whom are autistic. <laughs> and so you can see some of the class there and it is just unbelievable. So anyway, so I had some of my, you know, some non-speakers actually serve as my beta readers. I also had therapists, mothers, you know, parents, fathers, people from the Angelman community, a person who is an expert in alternative communication methods, who also happens to be the mother of a girl with uh, Angelman syndrome and autism, like all of these amazing resources that were really excited and that were willing to read and give me feedback. And so that feedback is it really, really helped to make a lot of, you know, clarifications and changes that that really improve the books. So I'm, I really am a huge proponent of sensitivity readers, especially if you are not uh, like I'm not a non-speaker, you know, and I don't have Angelman syndrome. So I think it's really, really important. And even for people who are within that, I still think it's good to get second opinions, third opinions, all of that sort of stuff. I, I'm always of the view, like more critique is better. I belong to two writing groups. So, you know, I definitely believe that. Well, and we should say that in very, 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 very <laughs> limited ways, you came to this from your own childhood of moving to the US as a, a non-English speaker with sort of an authenticity and interest in at least the psychological, emotional ways of, of what it's like. Yeah, yeah what, what it's, it's like. like to not be able to speak and even albeit temporarily and in a limited way. Yeah, I came to the U.S. as an 11 year old in middle school and, you know, and I couldn't speak any English. So I definitely experienced what it's like to go from thinking of myself as pretty smart, you know, because I was doing well in school and having no issues with that and being very outgoing and talkative. And then to the next day being shut down and what that feels like, which is not only frustrating, of course, like from a logistical perspective, you can't communicate, but it is, I, I just felt such shame because we in our society, we have this deep seated assumption that equates oral fluency with intelligence. And I had that assumption within myself, too. And so I felt stupid when I couldn't talk. I could see that other people thought the same thing. And when I got to understand English a little better, such that I could understand, but I still couldn't speak it well. And so people still thought I, you know, when you can't talk, people assume that you really can't understand. And so people would talk about me in front of me, which is a particularly humiliating experience that I just carry around to this day. And so when I found out about these non-speakers who have been trapped inside and who can have their words unlocked with alternative methods of communication, it just brought me back to that moment. And that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to write this novel was to write about that experience and and open people's eyes to that and have us really interrogate why is that? Why do we equate verbal fluency, oral fluency with intelligence, even when we know that that's not true? You know, in the case of stutterers, people with aphasia, people who speak with accents, we do it all the time. Yeah, it's always so interesting to me to talk to novelists about where their psychological 
stuff comes from that feeds their fiction. And it always seems to stem from childhood. Absolutely. You know, right. Not, yeah. Not to get it's too so formative. Yes. No, right. definitely. Definitely. I totally think that. And it's funny because I often talk to writers about the reason for that, which I think in my own mind is that pre-verbal, we don't have any way to kind of understand or attach our emotions to the world in a verbal contextual way. And so mm. it's just kind of all confusing yeah. in our psyche. And we spend the next, you know, 60, 70 years writing, you know, trying to unpack what the hell happened in those first, you know, five or six years. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's so amazing that and and I guess for me, because um, that that transition time, that liminal time of being here in the U.S., but not quite being American, but not no longer being Korean. Like to me, that feels like that childhood time. Right. That is such a formative time when I didn't have the words to express what I was feeling so much of the day, you know, like for 12 hours a day or whatever. And so even that limited way is like that. And which comes to why I'm teaching creative writing to these non-speakers. Like they've been feeling that their entire lives. Like most of them didn't learn to spell and get their, be able to get their words out until they were like, you know, well into their teenage years, some into adulthood. And so think of how much they have. And unless they actually have a communication partner, some of them are not fully independent. So they still need somebody holding a board in front of them and encouraging them, you know, so that so that they their minds don't wander off and they have all these regulation issues. And so a lot of the time, these writers that I'm teaching they are they have so many thoughts that they are editing and trying to get out in there and formulating in their heads. And so when they finally get to a board with a communication partner, you can just see their arms like moving and just their sentences and paragraphs are coming out in these perfect ways. It's really astounding. Mm. I love that you're working with that community. That's that's amazing. I'll have to go back and watch those videos. That's very cool. Yeah, it's very cool. Well, as we wrap up, I would love to talk just a minute about the business side of this. So you came to writing later without going through the sort of formalness of the MFA program, which is I feel like where every writer seems to find their agent these days. Right. So tell me, <laughs> yeah. tell me a little bit about that process of initially finding that agent for Miracle Creek. Was that all just kind of cold calling or tell, tell me about that? It was. It was um it was querying and cold querying, slush pile, all that kind of stuff. I wrote a query letter. I posted it on those forum boards where you're supposed to get feedback and everybody told me it was stupid. Um, and I was very <laughs> discouraged. And I said, you know what? I use my writing group. I only had one at that time. And it's an in-person one. We've we're still together and we've been together for like ten, you know, thirteen years ever since um we we found each other through those early workshops. So I workshopped it instead of going to these boards of random people. And I got it down to like one page once it was all done. And I sent and I made a list of, I think it was like 50 agents that were like my top agents and just using like Google and publishers marketplace and things like that. And, you know, and the acknowledgement sections of books that were my favorites. And I made like a dream top 10 agent list and I sent out the query to all of them at the same time. And I heard back from one right away mm. and who wanted a full manuscript. But then like for the next three weeks, nothing from anybody, including her. So I was actually preparing to send out my next 10. So I was going to do this in chunks of 10 is okay. what I had been told. And I still believe that that's a really, really great method. So I was preparing that and I was like preparing, you know, looking up all the agents that were on that list and trying to personalize it and saying like, oh, I heard this in this interview that you do blah, 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 or I really admire XYZ of your authors, that type of thing. Just something that I encourage everybody doing query letters to do really try to personalize it. I know it's painful. And then I heard from one agent. I guess she had read it. I'm, I'm not. I, I, I think in her query submission was that you send the full manuscript. So she had read the whole thing and she was ready to give me an offer. And as soon as I got off that call, I sent out 
a follow-up email to all the other nine saying like in all caps, urgent offer of representation. You know, <laughs> if you are interested, no idea if you are interested, if you are intrigued, but if you are, please let me know as, as I have an offer of representation. And it occurs to me, it occurred to me later that I could have been making that up because I didn't know, who, <laughs> I didn't say who it was, but I right. wasn't. It's probably not a good thing to do because they probably have ways of finding out and <laughs> that would be very embarrassing. But anyway, once I did that, I think FOMO kind of kicked in, fear of missing out, um, which is huge. I think in the publishing world. Mm -hmm. And so I heard from eight of the nine. Oh, oh wow. Immediately that night, including wow. from my own agent, Susan Gollum at the, at the writer's house. And she was actually, she had pneumonia and she was at the hospital. <laughs> oh my God. She was like, I'm so sorry. I have pneumonia, but I really want to read this. It sounds great. And so she was like, can you send it to me? And like, you know, and I hope my first reader, my assistant read it and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so I got enough yeses out of that batch within a few days that I was like, you know what, I'm coming up to New York, I'd love to meet everybody, you know, just because it's a big thing. It's like a hopefully a lifelong thing, you know, yeah. or at least yes. like a decades long thing that you're going to be with this person. So I really wanted to feel like I knew them. So I wanted to do a sit down. And I'm very much a believer in in-person stuff. And so I went up to New York and I met everyone and I just had a rapport with my agent that was just amazing. And I so I ended up going with her. So, yeah, mm. it was it was a, it was a really, really cool experience to go through. And I got very, very lucky. So I think it's really important to go with somebody that you have a good rapport with personally, but also whose editorial feedback resonates with you. So there was one agent that I just adored and I just thought we could be best friends, but something she said that we should think about changing, it just didn't resonate with me. In fact, it kind of was the opposite of what I would have been thinking. And so mm -hmm. I sort of thought I need to go with somebody who's reading taste who's when they give critiques that you go yes i i know that and sometimes it's painful to hear but i kind of it's one of these things that where it matches the inner voice you know that says yeah i know that this is going to be a lot of work but she's really right you know that kind of thing so i i really feel like it's important to have that kind of rapport editorially and personally with your agent yeah, I'm glad you said that because I was just going to ask what you specifically, I mean, beyond I like this person and I think we can work together what it was you were looking for. So yeah, that yeah. that is helpful that even if and, you like the person, you got to be on, on the same page. Yeah. And also the other thing is I don't think people realize how important agents are to the publication process. I mean, not only just for finding the right editor for you and submitting it, but I did not realize how involved agents are or can be throughout the entire publication process. Like my agent is on every single email. She is on all the important meetings. She's just, she's part of the team. She's part of the publication team. And as much as I am, and when I hear authors talking about their agents who kind of disappear after the deal is done, that kind of breaks my heart because I feel like agents have so much insight into what makes books successful. And of course, your editor and your publication team does too, but they have that kind of slightly outside perspective and they have it across the board with lots of different um, editorial teams and, and publishers. And so I feel like that's so important. And not to mention just the moral support of like, if something goes badly, I want to be able to call up my agent and just vent about it and have yeah. her know exactly and have her feel that too, like have her feel the joys and the disappointments alongside me. And so, you know, I feel like that's really, really important that you have an, an agent that's going to be there. And of course, you can find out about their level of involvement by asking to talk to their clients and, you know, and asking them to be honest about how involved they, they are and whether they feel comfortable calling them, you know, if something goes wrong yeah. or if something goes right, you know? 
Right. And did she sell two? Was it a two book deal that she sold? Initially? No. So it was um, it was a one book deal. She actually it was funny because I said, you know, I have like lots of ideas or I could do a short story collection. I have lots of stories that have been published. And she said, you know, I really for debuts, I really like doing a one book deal because you just never know how you're going to mesh. And, you know, you don't want to be stuck after you know if i think she's had too many authors that you know they they did a two book deal for their you know debut and you really don't know what you're getting into until after you've gone through your debut novel publication process there is so much stuff that i just didn't know about that i thought i had researched it but i could never have like learned just without having actually gone through it so I really felt like that was such a smart thing that she allowed me to do because I have so many debut friends. I joined this online, like private Facebook group thing of, I think, like 200 plus writers whose debut novels were coming out in 2019. So we sort of went through everything <laughs> together. Yeah. And they have one for like every year. I We, we loved ours. And I... You know, and there's one for 2018 and 20, you know, 24 now that's active, you know, right now for next year. It's such a great support system, but it's also a good way to like figure out, you know, how your experience may be the same or different from other people's and what the range of possibilities is and all that kind of stuff. So it's great. And I really highly encourage that. But it was really interesting going through it. Um, how so many of my debut author pals did do two book deals and then how many editors left. So I was orphaned at FSG, which is where my first book came out. So many of my friends were orphaned because editors leave, like editors leave and they go to different places. You know, a lot of change is happening in this industry, especially right now. That's the truth. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And so what happens when you're with an editor who was assigned to you, even if they're amazing and so supportive as mine was, there's still that voice in the back of my head that sort of went, oh, but she didn't choose me. I wonder if she really, truly loves my book the way mm -hmm. that, you know, I know my acquiring editor did. So, you know, so it's, it's that kind of a thing and it can breed insecurities. And I'm so insecure from my whole like experience with the <laughs> whole middle school thing anyways. So it was just for me, a really, really great way to have that. And on the other hand, you know, there's security, right? So if your first book doesn't do as well, then you have another chance because you have a two book deal. So that can be a very useful thing too. So it's, yeah. you know, there's pros and cons. And yeah, I'm sure every agent has their own thoughts about it. Well, this is fabulous. This is so much fun. It was, is there any advice that we've covered a lot of advice, but was is there advice we should have said that we did not say for writers? I don't think so. I really highly, I mean, the one piece of advice that I gave, give to all writers, even aspiring novelists, is if they have not worked on and polished and workshopped short stories and try mm. to submit them to get them published, I highly encourage going through that process because I feel like it's a novel is such an unwieldy thing. And the publication process is such an um, like awful, awful thing <laughs> from, you know, even if it ends up great, it's just, it's really, really hard to go through in, you know, the ups and downs that can come from all the rejection and all of that sort of stuff. And so I really feel like it's great to get a taste of that whole process and make sure that you're comfortable with all the aspects of not only the writing itself, but the business of being a writer too. Because if you're not cut out for it on the short story side, let me tell you, it is even more brutal on the novel side. Yes. Or book side. Your love of spreadsheets probably helps you out to keep track of all of these agents and places oh, you submit. And <laughs> yes, I have so many spreadsheets. And I have I have a spreadsheet that is, it's so funny because I have a spreadsheet of what every agent and every publisher, editor 
that we submitted my I, I submitted my our debut novel to what they have ever said about oh. me. So it's very, oh. it's very oh. handy. So when they like now are sending me, you know, like, oh, could you blurb my, you know, client's thing or whatever? I'll be like, hmm, how how nice were they to me? You know, no. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm not really kidding, but I'm kind of kidding. No, no, it's good. I mean, information, information is good. I thought you were going to say you had a spreadsheet of all your spreadsheets, which is what I need to do. (laughs) That's an excellent idea. I love that. You know, I've been keeping my spreadsheets on Google Sheets lately so that I, you know, when I open the Google Sheets home, it is a spreadsheet of basically all your spreadsheets, right? All your files are like right there. And so I've been using that a lot more lately. Brilliant. Angie Kim, I loved every minute of this. Thank you so much. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. This was amazing. I can't wait to re-listen to our conversation when it when it airs. And I'm really, really excited. Thank you so much. That was Angie Kim. The book is Happiness Falls. It's out and available now and published by Hogarth. In addition to our Patreon page and our bookshop, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two hours in Marie. And uh, of course, you can find the entire show up on writersonwriting.com. We have an archive of all of our past shows up there, as well as more information. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, however you consume your podcasts. As always, our fantastic music and sound editing was provided by Travis Barrett. Check him out at Spotify under Just My Type. You can hear all of this great typewriter music up there, and you can contact him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.